This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hello everyone, I hope that you're all doing well. Well, we've made it another year and we have another year ahead of us. One thing that I can guarantee is that these scary stories will not be going anywhere. So sit back, enjoy, and let us drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. Has anybody heard of this city? No one remembers it and something awful happened. Written by Tobias Malm Apparently, there was once a city in the north of Sweden called Corona, but somehow we've all forgotten about it. I'm a police officer working in Calix, a municipality close to where the lost city of Corona is supposed to have been. At that place, there are no signs of the city, only a dense forest, but certain details related to my own family makes me certain that this place was indeed real. The entire world just forgot about it. I can't imagine how or why, but it's the only conclusion that I've been able to reach. For me, this all started when two Romanian blueberry pickers came into my small office to report something that they had found deep in the dense forest. They didn't know enough Swedish or English to explain exactly what it was that they had found, but it was immediately clear to me that it had terrified them completely. From what I understood, it seemed to involve a human corpse. Eventually, after having brought in an interpreter from the town next to mine, it was revealed that they had stumbled upon a dead child, no more than 10 years old. And they led me and two of my colleagues, followed by an ambulance to the location where they had found the child. The sun was setting behind a thick mist when we got there. I lit a cigarette while we left the main road and walked into the forest, to where the child was supposed to be. I felt a bit uncomfortable having to deal with a dead child, but I had handled cases like this before. Some car accidents and didn't feel too affected by it now. It was just another job, or so I thought. The Romanian stopped when we got close and refused to go any further. There was panic in their eyes more than I expected even given these extreme circumstances. One of my colleagues stayed with them while the rest of us continued. We soon came upon a huge boulder that had been placed there by the ice sheet that covered Europe during the ice age. My colleague walked around it and a few moments later he came running back, pale as if he had seen the devil himself. He bent down and puked right in front of me. It he said. It's on the other side. Dear God. I didn't ask him any questions. I only proceeded to check it out for myself with the medics following behind me. What we found on the other side of the boulder, it wasn't natural. Half the child, a blonde little girl, was fused with the boulder, just as if she had been passing through it 
as a ghost and then suddenly turned into a human before she had time to exit the rock. Or as my colleagues later remarked, it was as if she had been teleported into the rock. The girl's sorrowful dead gaze into the forest seemed to tell a story of a tragedy unknown to the living. The medics quickly shied away from her eyes in silence, horrified by the fate that she must have suffered. But I couldn't look away. I've never been a religious man, but this experience made me doubt everything that I had believed before. And I don't just mean the bizarre way the poor girl had lost her life, half engulfed by the boulder. There was something else about the girl as well, something that made me feel completely empty inside. And just as if a piece of my own soul was ripped out of me, leaving an empty hole in my heart that quickly filled up with the sorrow that I had never felt before. It was a dreadful feeling only made worse by the strange fact that a small part of me recognized the girl. I couldn't tell from where. Her face was like the vague memory of a dream recently forgotten. We collected ourselves and started talking, trying to make sense of the situation without any success, while the medics approached the body. I tried to focus on the hard facts while we investigated the scene. The girl was wearing a pink jacket. In one of the pockets, we found an odd-looking flower. Its colors were exotic and resembled the wings of a beetle, and a yellow library card with a text that puzzled us. The Library of Corona, it said. The girl had written her name on the card as well. When I saw it, my world had started spinning. Isabella Lexilis. It said in the girl's childish handwriting. Isn't that your last name, sir? My colleague said. It, it is. I didn't know what to say or think. Well, do you know her? I don't know. No, no, I've never seen her before in my entire life. It must be a coincidence. That's a pretty big coincidence, sir. I didn't respond to that. There's something on the ground as well, one of the medics said. On the blood-stained moss beneath the girl, there was a notebook. It must have fallen out of her hand, the one that was hanging limply above the book. I picked it up and opened it. The pages were covered with small text written with a different handwriting than the girl's. Sir, one of the medics said, we will have to bring some tools to cut her down. Yes, I said absently. Oh, there's one more thing, the medic said. I put the book in a plastic evidence bag. What? There's too much blood. The medic pointed at the ground. What do you mean there's too much blood? I asked. Beneath the boulder, sir, the medic explained. It's impossible for all that blood to come from a child. A moment of silence and then I said, We will have to come back here with better tools. A day later, we successfully removed the upper body of the girl and brought it back to the morgue where it was examined. We also tried to lift the boulder with the help of a crane, but it wouldn't budge. Instead, we dug a hole under it, but we didn't find any new body parts. All we could do this day was to sample as much of the blood as possible. During the examination of the body, I read the notebook. It contained the story of the city of Corona. I was convinced it was fiction, a deranged story written by the man I thought must have killed the girl. 
until a few weeks ago when the forensic lab called me. I still have a hard time believing it, but they told me there's no other way. They had tested the DNA of the girl and compared it to mine because of her last name. It was my idea since I didn't want anyone to suspect anything. But we didn't think it would reveal anything. But it did. The ten or so years old girl, Isabella, was my daughter. I was sure that it was impossible. Ten years earlier, I lived with my ex-wife and I never cheated on her and certainly didn't have any children with her. We stayed together for five more years, so I would have known if she had a baby during that time. And yet there was nothing wrong with the test. Below is a transcript of the notebook. I've typed it out here in the hopes that somebody will remember the city of Corona or someone who might have lived in it. Please contact me if you have any information. This is what was inside the notebook. My name is Helen of Fredrickson. Five years ago, I was a different person. I was younger back then, not just in the ordinary sense, but in spirit too. There was joy in my life and I had hopes and dreams, but that's all gone now. I don't have that much time to write this down, but I'll try and explain what happened to us, to our entire community, as well as I can. The event, as we have come to call it, occurred on July 9th, 2013. I was only visiting Corona over the day to take my niece, Isabella, to the grand opening of the Red Grove, the city's new amusement park. It was supposed to be the biggest one in Sweden and Isabella had begged her parents to go to the grand opening, but neither of them had been able to due to work, so they called me and asked me to do it for them. I was their go-to person for when they needed help with Isabella, the only one they trusted really. How I wish that hadn't been the case now considering what had happened. We arrived pretty early a few hours before the opening, so that we wouldn't need to stay in line the whole day to get inside. The weather was amazing. It had rained earlier in the morning so we had been a bit worried, but when we got to the city there wasn't a cloud in sight. Isabella couldn't stop talking about how much fun that we would have, and it warmed my heart to see her so happy. It took us a bit longer than expected to get to the amusement park, since one of the main streets had been closed off for a military parade. This didn't bother us that much. It rather increased the feeling of celebration in the air. And to avoid the parade, we had to take a bus to the city center, the Frasia Square. And from there, we had to take the subway to the Yellow Neutral Business Cluster, the tallest skyscrapers in Sweden. It was possible for us to walk to the Red Grove from there. There were people everywhere. It turned out that a lot of them had taken a ferry down the river that I didn't know about. This meant that we had to stand in line after all. Isabella didn't mind, but I knew she would get hungry soon, and I worried that it would ruin her mood. Luckily, though, there was a man selling hot dogs from a cart that he was pushing down the line. I bought a hot dog and a soda for Isabella. Her parents didn't really like when I bought her junk food, but a day like this I thought they would understand. The man was also selling red balloons to the children, so Isabella said she wanted one. I tried to tell her that she would have to carry it around all day and that there would be more balloons inside the amusement park, but she wouldn't listen to me. 
So reluctantly, I bought her a balloon as well. At this point, no one knew that their entire lives were about to change in a matter of minutes. Isabella accidentally let go of the balloon. I feared that it would make her sad, but it didn't seem to bother her that much. We looked at the balloon as it rose up into the air and drifted away. Soon, it was but a red dot against the vast blue sky, and then suddenly it vanished. Where did it go? Isabella said. I couldn't explain it. It had just disappeared. I don't know, I said. Maybe it popped. But something, an uneasy feeling that I couldn't rationalize made me doubt that. And then only a few minutes later, strong winds came from every direction. It carried a smell with it that reminded me of something rotten. Ew, Isabella said as her long white hair was blowing in the wind. What's that smell? I held her hand harder. I don't know, I said. People looked around confused and their joyful voices became concerned. Something was happening but nobody knew what it was. Sirens echoed in the distance, seemingly coming from the business cluster. Oh my god, a woman said and pointed towards these skyscrapers. The top of the building's gone. It wasn't that easy to see, but she was right. The top of the tallest building was gone as if it had been cut off with a knife. Isabella was too short to see it, but she picked up that something wasn't right on everybody's faces and she became worried herself. I think we need to get away from here, I said, acting completely on instinct. I don't think it's safe. Isabella teared up. But the opening, aren't we? We'll come back later, sweetheart. I said as I walked away from the crowd with her. One of the fairies were just about to leave, and we quickly stepped aboard. A few others joined us, but most of the people stayed behind in the hopes that everything would be sorted out. Isabella cried, but she wasn't mad. As the ferry slowly drove away from the riverside promenade, a commotion of some kind erupted among the crowd back on land. I couldn't see what was going on, but suddenly, everybody screamed in terror and tried to run towards the water. They were clearly escaping from something, but I couldn't see what it was. All I saw was people stepping on each other while they tried to jump into the river to swim away. It was a horrible sight, and I'm glad that Isabella wasn't tall enough to see over the railing. Next, the sirens from the emergency alert system began blasting its eerie sound of imminent catastrophe. Everybody asked questions no one had answers to. Most people I heard thought that we were under attack, either by terrorists or the Russians. I picked up my phone to call my sister, but there was no signal. I tried with Isabella's phone as well without any luck. I soon discovered that no one had any signal. At the sides of the river that passed through the city, people were looking out their windows trying to get a glimpse of what was going on. But the only thing that they could see that was out of the ordinary was the cutoff building in the yellow neutral business cluster. Look, Isabella said and pointed at the sky. I've never seen such a big bird before. An enormous bird-like creature soared high above us. It was pitch black. Although it was impossible to say for sure, it seemed to be just as confused about seeing us as we were seeing it. It circled the city center a few times and then flew away again. 
the sight of the giant bird or whatever it truly was turned our anxious confusion into terror. We still didn't know what had happened, but now we knew that it didn't have anything to do with terrorists or some foreign power. This was something else, something impossible to believe and yet at the same time impossible to deny. The ferry led us off a bit further down the river, close to Fraser Square. People seemed to be in a state of panic, although no one knew what was wrong. Some were packing their cars to escape the city. Others were running somewhere, perhaps to their loved ones. But most people clustered around police officers, city workers, or military personnel from the parade to try and get some information. But they only got the same answer over and over again yelled at them so that it could be heard over the sirens from the emergency alert system. That nothing was known and that they needed to return to their homes and listen to the radio for more information. How are we supposed to listen to the radio when the power's out? The voice came from an old woman. Look around, there's no power. She was right. Go home and close your windows and wait for the power to come back, a policeman said. We don't know what's going on, but the safest thing to do is to follow the procedure. He was interrupted by something happening a few meters away. The first person who had tried to leave the city, a man on a loud motorcycle, had come back. I was carrying Isabella, comforting her at the same time as I tried to hear what the man on the bike was trying to tell everyone. I pushed through to get closer to him. He walked to the center of the square and climbed up on the foot of the statue of Freja. Few people believed him, but everybody that had seen the creature in the sky had no doubt that he was telling the truth, however impossible it seemed. There is no way out, the man yelled. The main road's cut off at the edge of the city end. There's only jungle. I can't explain it, I'm sorry, but it's true. We're surrounded by a dense, a thick jungle and there's no way around it. Then it's true. A policeman whispered to himself next to me. For the love of God, it was all true. I asked him what he meant. At first, he didn't want to acknowledge my question, but when he saw my confusion and tears in my niece's innocent eyes, he turned to me and said quietly, And before we lost contact with the helicopter that was surveilling the parade, the pilot said something that simply didn't make any sense. He, he was crashing. Something had cut off his rotor blades, and he said that it had all changed somehow. The view had changed. Before he hit the ground, he yelled that he had seen a jungle to the west and an ocean to the east. More and more reports came in, and even though it was impossible to tell rumors from facts, they were all telling the same story. The entire world around the city had been replaced in an instance. The city was the same, but the sky above it wasn't. Eventually, these screaming sirens went silent. The cars stopped beeping their horns and the cacophony of voices died out. An uncanny silence fell over the city. The feeling was beyond unreal. I didn't know what any of this meant. I tried to explain it to my niece, but she was only five years old and she couldn't understand. She wanted to go home to her parents and I didn't know what to tell her. She was tired and needed rest, so I went to a hostel nearby and paid for a room. Soon the economy of the city would collapse, but for the first few days in this new unknown world, people still accepted money as payment. What followed was five years of unending trials and hardships. 
a continuous battle for survival with no hope for help or rescue. It started during the first night. The sun identical to our own yet new and strange, sat due north instead of west and was replaced by unrecognizable stars covering the entire sky. As I looked up at them from the small window in our room, I didn't feel awe, but rather I felt completely lost. The strangest feeling during all these years must have been the paradoxical sensation of familiarity on the streets, mixed with the awareness of total displacement. I think this was partly why people kept close to the city center, to drown themselves in the illusion of being home, even though they knew deep down that they couldn't escape their fate as stranded in the unknown. And then as I leaned out the window, I heard the sounds. People screaming, gunshots, cars driving madly through the streets without anywhere to go, and the occasional odd howling that made my blood run cold. I never saw anything of what happened that night, but it changed the population. More than two million people forever. I closed the window and hid behind the bed with Isabella. She wanted to cry for her mother, but I kept my hand over her trembling mouth. The next night was calmer, probably because nobody dared venture outside. During the days, I soon realized the threat didn't come from the unknown jungle outside of the city, but from the people within it. It was impossible to tell how much crimes were committed, but given what I saw with my own eyes, looting, robberies, and even murders, I figured the rate of crime must have gone up by a lot. However, it was in total anarchy. The police and the few military units that had been in town for the parade kept some vital order to the community. Since ordinary people didn't have guns, the police and the military wasn't threatened by the average citizen. A leader had stepped forward, the man on the motorcycle, and after a few weeks, everybody seemed to cooperate peacefully. The food that was left in the stores were mostly distributed fairly, and everybody that could work seemed to do it without hesitation, even I. The scientists that had been working at the university at the time of the event couldn't figure out what had happened, but with the help of hundreds of citizens, they managed to build a small nuclear power plant that could return electricity to the city. I mostly helped out with that project. I didn't know anything about nuclear physics, but I did what little I could. It was amazing what we were capable of as a people, and in all my dreadfulness, a feeling of pride grew in my chest. Although our time in this world wasn't simple, far from it. Aside from my personal problem with keeping Isabella healthy and safe, which I succeeded with although she never felt safe, there were three major problems that kept growing larger for every week. The first one was the food and water situation. Some people had managed to grow wheat and potatoes in parks and on soccer fields, but it wasn't enough. We were running out of food and water. It did rain from time to time, but very few people felt safe enough to drink the rainwater. To battle this problem and to find solutions to some other problems as well, expeditions were sent out to explore the jungle. These typically ended the same way, that is with no one coming back. Only once or twice did somebody manage to return to the city, but they weren't themselves anymore. It was as if something in the jungle had captured their souls and 
let their bodies walk back unscratched. The second problem was nature. It seemed to have spared us the first couple of months, but soon after we got the electricity back, it turned on us. It took a while before I saw it with my own eyes, but seemingly at random, mysterious creatures entered the city. Sometimes they just walked right through it, never to return again. A policewoman, one of the new recruits, told me that she had followed a naked blue child as it solemnly walked into the city and then back out of it again. At other times, indescribable monsters wreaked havoc on the streets, killing as many people as they could before returning to wherever they came from. At one point in this, I actually saw for myself an enormous centipede, pure white with hundreds of red eyes, suddenly appeared from a manhole. It quickly climbed up against a building, as if it knew exactly what it was doing, and entered one of the windows on the top floor. Next came the screams from the people inside the building. A few escaped, but everybody else inside were ripped to shreds. Only after about five minutes did the centipede exit the building from the entrance, its white segmented body stained with blood, and it returned down the manhole. These attacks, as they were called, aroused fear and panic in all of us. Although it didn't happen that often, it happened often enough for everybody to be on edge all the time. The third problem also didn't become noticeable until later. It was a problem of health. There was no pattern to who was affected or not, but some people probably no more than 1% got sick. It started out like a fever and slowly progressed with nightmarish mutations randomly hitting the body. Most of these mutations made the victims handicapped and disfigured. But sometimes very rarely, the victims developed properties that were seemingly beneficial to them. The most extreme case of this that I saw was a young girl who grew a third eye in the middle of her forehead. The iris of the new eye glittered with amazing colors and the girl claimed that she could use the eye to see other people's emotions. At the beginning of the health crisis, the sick people were treated badly, just as if they had been monsters from the jungle. This treatment only got worse when it was revealed that the creatures from outside never attacked the sick. At one point, a mom gathered at Frasia Square, set on chasing the sick people out of the city. Luckily, this was stopped by the military. In the end, however, the sick people were sent into the jungle, not to be away with them though, but to make use of their immunity to the nature of this world. This turned into a huge success that eventually solved the food and water problem. They could venture out and explore the surrounding area and return with edible fruits, vegetables, and small mammal-like animals that they hunted. This was a turning point for us. And then luck struck again. All attempts at fishing had failed so far, but all of a sudden, there were fish everywhere on the river. And we soon learned that there were different periods from when the fish were out to sea or close to land. However, as soon as they came close to land, mysterious purple thunderstorms that lasted weeks tormented the city. And yet, we survived. Many people didn't, of course, but life was possible. In the end, we prevailed. And during the five years that followed, there weren't that many catastrophes and our focus on survival kept most of our thoughts of home away. Even Isabella thought less and less of her parents as she grew older. 
Over time, most people got used to the bizarre situation that they had found themselves in back in July of 2013. Many people did commit suicide, yes, but most people chose to live on in this unknown land. And two events, however, changed things. First is what happened to a planned expedition at sea. Hundreds of people, mostly men, decided to venture out into the ocean with one of the luxury cruisers that had been moored next to the city. This was going to be a great adventure and perhaps a way to find some answers to where we had ended up. It inspired all of us, thousands of people, Isabella and I included. We had gathered to watch as the huge boat slowly sailed out. It all felt similar to that day five years earlier when we had waited for the amusement park to open. We all stared at the horizon as the boat named Birdo de Espero turned into a small dot against the setting sun. We imagined the amazing adventures they would be on and looked forward to their return. But then something that must have been larger than anything we had seen so far came out of the water and swallowed the boat whole. Some people screamed and others cried. This was a hard blow to the city, just knowing that a creature like that, a being able to eat an entire luxury cruiser in one bite, could exist deprived many people their hopes of a future. The next event was different. It was a miracle to say the least. It happened only a month after the destruction of Birdo de Espero. A military guard, a young man who had only been 15 at the time of our disappearance from Earth, discovered that when he stood at a certain place at Fraser Square, he could tune into a specific radio station from our old world. The station's name was Synthwave Mix and dedicated most of its broadcasting to that kind of music. Hope returned immediately, but this time the hope was different from the one that we had spent five years building up within ourselves. The hope of seeing our loved ones again, the hope to return home. The people at the university investigated the area to try and determine where the radio signals were coming from. They didn't have much success, but soon realized that they emanated from the ground beneath Fraser Square. While the area was investigated by the scientists, ordinary people showed up in mass. They all had radios of different kinds with them, like children carrying stuffed animals to feel safe, hoping to tune into synthwave mix and get a taste of their lost home. Of course, the area where the radio station could be heard was too small and the police had to chase everybody away to give the scientists the room that they needed. A few days later though, the scientists placed a set of large speakers at the foot of the statue of Freja and connected them to the receiver they were using to listen in on the radio station. Day and night, the relaxed, somewhat melancholic synthetic music played non-stop to the entire city. People congregated around the statue. They even defied the dangers of the night. This became our city's new tradition, ending the day by going to the statue and sitting down around it, as if in prayer it became our pilgrimage. This wasn't exactly the music that drew people to the square, but rather its origin. And still, the electronic melodies soon turned into a symbol of all of our hopes and desires. From time to time, people would get up and dance, sometimes while crying from a bittersweet joy difficult to explain. Although the thing that made us all go silent and become totally focused was when the host said something. Usually, they only spoke about the music they were broadcasting, completely unaware that an entire city full of people were listening to them almost religiously. 
but on rare occasions they talked about the world outside. At those times it felt like our hearts collectively stopped in anticipation. Would they say something about us, about their efforts to figure out where we had all gone, and how they would bring us back? But there was never any news about us, just as if they had already forgotten about us or never known about us at all. The tragic fate of the city of Corona never came up, yet we never lost fate. It took a long time and now I'm getting closer to the present day but eventually, the scientists decided that it would be worthwhile digging a large hole right where the radio waves seemed to sip out of the ground. This was no easy task and neither was it safe. The work took weeks, again we all helped. No one really knew what exactly we were looking for, we only knew that it was something. And when we reached the bottom where the rock was too hard to dig through, a mountain of dirt covered the entire square. Our efforts had been in vain, we discovered. Right beneath the place where the radio waves had been picked up, there was a small hole in the bedrock, and people were asked to back away from it while the scientists investigated it. First, they tried to measure how deep it was. This took some time since it was hard to find a long enough rope, but in the end, it was estimated to be about 700 meters deep. Next, some equipment was sent down tied to the end of the rope, and to everybody's surprise, everything that was sent down was swallowed up by the hole. Of course, no one knew where it went, but we all thought the same thing, that somehow it had returned home. It was a reasonable assumption given that the only thing coming out of the hole, the radio waves, came from Earth. We all rejoiced in this discovery. More experiments were done and although some questions remained unanswered, the consensus, even among the scientists, was that the hole really was a portal back to our own world. There were two large problems that needed to be solved though. The first was the safety. Every time somebody tied to the rope disappeared at the bottom of the hole, the rope was cut off just like the skyscraper five years earlier. This meant that it was possible that whoever entered the hole would be cut off as well. However, this problem was solved pretty soon, by tying a camera to the rope connected to a screen above ground. It was discovered that the rope was only cut off when pulled back. As long as it wasn't pulled back, the screen still received a signal from the camera. The camera never recorded anything other than darkness on what was assumed to be the other side. But since it continued to work until the rope was pulled back, this didn't seem to be such a big problem. After all, some technical issues were expected under the circumstances. The second problem was that the hole was too small for anybody to fit into. Many attempts were made to widen the hole, but the bedrock seemed to be made out of a stronger material than any of our machines could tear into. This was extremely frustrating. It made us feel like we had reached the finish line only to discover that we were unable to cross it. In the end, one of the scientists said that she wanted to send her 10-year-old son down the hole. He was small enough to fit into it. This was widely debated for quite some time before it was approved. The mother argued that the city of Corona was no place for her son, and that all the evidence suggested the hole was the only way back home. The boy was brave. He knew that he would probably never see his poor mother again but still went through with it. He was given a walkie-talkie and after a tear-filled goodbye to his mother, he was sent down the 700 meters deep, pitch-black hole. 
He was instructed to radio in after he reached the other side, confirming that he was safe. After the rope was pulled back, the mother waited and waited for his son to report. However, he never did. For weeks, the mother sat at the edge of the hole under merciless heat and under pouring rain, calling her son over and over again with her walkie-talkie. No one knew what, if anything, had gone wrong. Since no other radio waves had been picked up other than synthwave mix, it was possible that other radio waves simply could not enter into our world for some reason. Still, the authority deemed the hole too unsafe for anyone else to enter. This didn't change people's minds, though. The hole represented the only true hope that we had felt in years. And given all the horrible things in our world that could destroy us at any moment, as easily as it is for us to blow out a candle, the small risk of going through the hole seemed to be more than acceptable. The hole was guarded by the police, but most of the police shared the city's collective opinion that the hole was the only way out. Not for many of the adults, but for our children. And now I'm sitting here in the room I paid for five years ago writing this down. During the last few weeks, many parents have been sending their children down the hole at night. This world is truly no place for them. Although they could survive, they deserve better. Hence, like many others, I've decided to send Isabella home. When I told her about it, she looked at me with a happiness in her eyes that I hadn't seen since we were transported to this dreadful and godforsaken world. I've been writing this all day now. It's my testimony to what happened to Corona. I will give this notebook to Isabella. I'm sure she'll be able to give it to her father. Somehow I know it in my heart that she will find her way home to her parents. Soon, it'll be dark and I'll bring Isabella to Frasia Square one last time. I'm sorry it took so long. Helena. This show is also sponsored by BetterHelp. During the holiday season, a lot of stress can be placed on trying to find the perfect gift for your loved ones. But through all of that, don't forget about getting a gift for yourself. So, whether it might be by starting therapy or going easier on yourself during the tough moments, or treating yourself to a day of complete rest, remember to give yourself some love this holiday season. With BetterHelp, your counselor is available 24-7 via messaging and for scheduled weekly video or phone sessions. It lets you skip the awkward waiting room experience that you would get in in-person therapy. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MrCreeps today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MrCreeps. My friends and I bought an abandoned amusement park. There's a reason it shut down. Written by the Dalek Emperor. In two miles, take exit 19 for Valley Park Drive South. Siri chirped from my sister's phone. Ah, uh, Charlotte, turn that off. I know where I'm going. Are you sure about that? I mean, it has been a couple of decades, Mark. Please, like I could ever forget where Adventure Valley is. 
Come on, we spent every summer of. Hey, there it is. I swerved it briefly into the oncoming lane as Charlotte thrust her arm in front of my face to point excitedly out the window. There's Adventure Valley. Oh my god, what ride is that? That coaster it was called, um, Steel Something, right? No, no, wait. That's Mayhem Mountain, isn't it? I gently pushed my sister's arm out of my face and back over to her seat. I couldn't falter for her excitement while I was trying so hard to control my own giddiness. It felt like we were kids again, yelling and bouncing in the backseat of my parents' car as the first shining rails and wooden planks of the park's roller coasters came into view above the treetops. That's the Steel Viper, I told her. Mayhem Mountains on the other end of the park, and that wooden coaster over there is the Excalibur. Oh yeah, I remember those. I was always too much of a wuss to ride the Viper, but I rode the crap out of the Excalibur. Well, Charlotte, you're an adult now. I think it's time to take on the Viper. As long as the contractors have tested it and given it the okay that I'm in. That was really the question, wasn't it? We didn't know which rides had been inspected and cleared and which ones hadn't. I sent up a silent prayer that Mayhem Mountain was counted among the rides that had. I had left Brandon several voicemails asking about it since he was the one in charge of everything, but with how fast things had been moving since we had bought the park, I couldn't fault him for being a busy man. If you had told 12-year-old me that my crazy, hyper-wild-eyed friend, Brandon Decker, would end up graduating cum laude from Northwestern Business School, I would have laughed in your face. Brandon, no way. Tyler, maybe, but never Brandon. In fact, half the reason I think he chose a business designation was because of Adventure Valley. When the park had closed in 1989, Brandon had gathered all of us together in his basement and, with a gravitas and solemnness that I had never seen in him before or since, asked us to make a pact. At the time, the promise had been the most serious vow that five 12-year-olds could ever make. High off of an entire summer of Adventure Valley fun, we agreed with all the ceremony of a meeting of parliament that we would one day come together and buy Adventure Valley Amusement Park. Of course, back then we had planned to just buy it and ride the roller coasters into the ground. We decided which friends from school we would let in and which enemies would be barred from the gates. It had always been our park and it was only right that we should have it. It had taken 20 years, but we eventually did fulfill our promise. With a heck of a lot of pushing from Brandon and a sizable offer of collateral from Tyler, the bank had agreed to give us the multi-million dollar loan to buy, repair, refurbish, and reopen the park. The size of the loan that these six of us were responsible for gave me nightmares for several weeks. How would this place ever turn a profit? It had been closed decades ago after operating in the red for several years. The county had experienced a high number of runaways and missing persons in the area in the last years of the 1980s. The entire region was on edge as the cases mounted and people in the area became depressed and suspicious of each other. It had absolutely killed the park's attendance. But seeing the first cresting waves of roller coaster rails through the trees made me all but forget about my financial worries. This was Adventure Valley for Christ's sake. If we opened the gates, people would come. There, 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 that's our exit, Charlotte squeaked. I pulled off the interstate and took a left under the bridge. 
Less than a mile later, we came upon the acres of the park's parking lots to our right. We turned in and drove all the way up to the front near the gates where several other cars were parked. A Lexus, a Mini Cooper, and an old Chevelle and a Honda Civic. Another rental car like ours. Uh, looks like we're the last ones here, Charlotte said. She was right. As we pulled up next to the Lexus, I noticed a group of people standing next to the ticket booth, waving at us excitedly. Oh my god, is that Tyler? Jesus, he's lost some weight. He's so skinny now. And Brandon's losing his hair. Holy crap, is that Koji? Koji got hot. Calm down, Paris Hilton. These guys are my friends. They're off limits to you. Same rules as when we were teenagers. Besides, half of them are married. Oh, really? Which half? I raised an eyebrow at Charlotte and shook my head in amused bewilderment. My little sister never had outgrown her boy craziness. Wait, who's that? Charlotte asked as we got out of the car. What? That's Scott. You know Scott. Not Scott. Scott looks exactly the same. The girl next to Scott. Oh. I had put this off so long that I had actually forgotten to tell my sister at all. That's Danny, Scott's girlfriend. Danny as in Danielle Bircher. Well, yeah. My sister gave me such a horrified look that she would think I had betrayed her to her death. But it was fleeting and quickly replaced by a sly smile. Uh, fine by me, I'm sure she's not the same person that she was in high school. We're all adults now, right? Now come on, let's go. A sigh of relief escaped my chest and I slammed the car door and followed Charlotte over to the entrance. Though I saw most of these guys every year, seeing us all here together standing at the ticket booth of Adventure Valley, it brought me a sort of happiness that I hadn't experienced in many years. Mark Lantis, I can't believe it. Tyler had an edgy, commanding voice that probably made his many employees shudder and scatter. But I knew him like a brother, so his bravado just made me laugh. Can you believe it? I asked as I gave him a hug and a slap on the back. Back at front gates, $15 a day doesn't seem so ridiculous now. $15 a day, yeah right. Brandon said as he shook my hand. By my math, it looks like we'll be charging about $65 a day. I'll pay it. Charlotte smiled as she gave Koji a hug. Are people really going to pay $65 a day? Koji asked. Even Disneyland only charges $85 and there you get access to two parks. How could I forget? Brandon shook his head. One of our investors works for the mouse. Pity they won't let you design any artwork for this place. Uh, come on, man, I'm not an artist, I'm an engineer. Uh, don't you mean imagineer? Charlotte winked at him. Koji sighed and shook his head. Yeah, I do. As Brandon and Charlotte teased Koji, I made my way over to the side of the ticket booth where Scott and his girlfriend were conversing. I didn't know why Scott was being so standoffish, but I thought that it might have something to do with the investment. Scott, the least well off of the six of us, worked at his dad's collision shop and hadn't had a whole lot of money to invest. I thought maybe he was embarrassed about the money, but now, watching him lean against the booth with slowly shifting eyes, I realized that it wasn't that at all. Scott was just stoned. Same old Scott. 
What's up, burnout? My brother, I haven't seen you in like 15 years. How about a bro hug? Scott smiled and pushed off the wall to come give me a quick hug. Hey, how's it going, man? God, look at you. What's your diet, man? Rabbit food and lettuce. You're not going to get any ladies with that skinny body. And your mom doesn't seem to mind. Hey, Mark, I'm Danny. Do you remember me? Danny Bircher. Scott's girlfriend gave me a shy smile and stuck out her hand so that we could engage in a stiff handshake. Yeah, I think so. You were in my sister's class, right? Charlotte Lantis. And Danny had the decency to look embarrassed. Yeah, but we weren't really friends. That's putting it lightly, I thought. We were freshmen when you guys were seniors, she added. Yep, I do remember that. Maybe I should just get it over with. I called Charlotte over in the reintroduction of the two girls, while Awkward was over pretty quickly to everybody's relief. We were all eager to get into the park. It was odd not stopping at the window for tickets and even odder to walk around the rusting turnstiles of the front gates. I delighted in reminding myself that we own this place now. Brandon gave us a tour of the park. Not so much of the geography, we all knew that inside and out, but of the hypothetical layout and reorganization of the park as he saw it. The Excalibur is going to need the most amount of work, according to Reg, Brandon's head contractor. A roller coaster made of wood exposed to the elements for all these years. We'll keep as much of the original structure as is safe, but we might have to rebuild most of it. Do we have money for that? Scott asked loudly from where he walked behind us with Danny. Yeah, Tyler said. We have the money for that. Ah, Mr. Moneybags. That mini dealership treating you good. I nudged him hard with my shoulder. Tyler stumbled but kept enough composure to push me back into a passing churl stall. Those six BMW dealerships are treating me very well. Well enough to serve as the sizable collateral that we needed, Brandon added. So, Charlotte ran up behind us and threw her arms around Tyler and Koji. Can we ride some of the rides? Are you kidding? Why do you think we're here? Tyler laughed. I'm just here for Mayhem Mountain. I said, clapping my hands and rubbing them together eagerly. Brandon threw up his hands. All right, fine. I thought you guys would be interested in how your investment is coming along. Koji snorted. All we're interested in is the projected ROI and more importantly, which rides have passed a safety inspection. Oh, Brandon stopped walking and tried to look annoyed, and failing at that he smiled. A little over half of them are rideable. Suddenly everybody was talking at once. Is still Viper open? Yep, that's the one. What about Snapdragon? Yeah, that one is good to go too. Renegade Falls? Nah, the water's not on. High Roller? Yep. Space Spin? Oh yeah. Power Tower? They're doing the inspection this week. But there was only one ride that I really cared about. Mine and Brandon's favorite. What about Mayhem Mountain? Hell yes. He answered to collective groans from the rest. Mayhem Mountain had always been our thing. The others had always been happy to ride High Roller and Snapdragon into exhaustion. Brandon and I always split off toward the end of the day to ride Mayhem Mountain into the twilight hours. 
Uh, Charlotte shuddered. I hate that ride. Yeah, it's just boring, Koji agreed. I'll design something similar for Disneyland Hong Kong. We put it in Fantasyland for Pete's sake. Hey, that ride is awesome, it's long and it goes upside down, I argued. Charlotte is even too scared to ride it. I'm not scared of that ride, it just gives me the creeps. Something about it just, I don't know, it seems off. Alright look, we'll start at this end of the park and work our way towards the back. That way we can ride every ride that's past inspection, including Mayhem Mountain, Brandon said. And Snapdragon, Tyler added and the others nodded excitedly. Yes, every ride, and of course we can ride them, you know, as many times as we want. Hell yes, brother. Koji high-fived Brandon and we headed down the street towards Space Spin. Our progress through the park was blissfully slow. Everyone wanted to ride every ride multiple times and one person always had to stay in the loading area to operate the ride. It only took an hour or two to forget that I was a fully grown 35-year-old man. Being back here running through the lineways with my friends, arguing who got the first row of the first car, it was like being 12 years all over again. But still my eye was constantly drawn up over the buildings into the distance, to the back of the park where the high gleaming rails and Mayhem Mountain shined in an obscured sun. There would be no arguing who got front row on that coaster. It was me and Brandon. It was always me and Brandon. Charlotte, Tyler, and Koji were the most like children, constantly running ahead and arguing over which ride to get on next, yelling back to ask Brandon if this one or that one had been cleared by the contractors. Brandon and I held back from the group a bit, discussing ideas and possible improvements for the park. Scott and Danny took up the rear of the group, quietly talking and lighting joints. When we arrived at the Enterprise, a simple ride that consisted of spinning cars on a circular track, I offered to flip the switch while the rest of the group rode to excess. The Enterprise always made me sick when we were kids. Brandon offered to stay on the platform with me to chat while everyone else rode the ride. I flipped the switch to turn the ride on and as the cars spun away from the loading area, the Enterprise's signage came into view. I sighed. All day I had been trying to ignore the bright graffiti sprayed all over the park, but the words painted over the signage for the Enterprise were impossible to ignore. Where did the missing kids go? And the rest of the graffiti in the park was much the same. Most said things like, Where are they? Runaway Row. Find Ryan Kinski. And the missing are now dead. The similar sayings could be found in town sprayed across a few dilapidated buildings in the industrial district. Brandon's eyes avoided the sign, but I could tell that he was thinking about it too. And do you think the reason they shut this park down, I mean, do you see that being an issue for park attendance? I asked as casually as I could. Brandon was quiet for a few moments as he waited for the ride to slow to a stop so that he could flip the switch again. Nah, I don't think so. Low attendance issues aren't actually what shut the park down. They aren't? This surprised me. Nope. When we were negotiating the sale of the park, I was given access to the park's financials in the 80s. So they weren't operating at a loss. Oh, they were. 
but this park has operated in the red since opening day in the 70s. Half of the revenue was being fed back into something called county services, whatever that is. The bank couldn't tell me and believe me, I tried to find out. County services, I mused. Yep, it's bizarre. And according to the paperwork, the park was closed because the owner didn't want to live here anymore. And he couldn't be bothered to wait for a decent offer on the property, so he just sold it off to the bank for next to nothing. So he was a rich guy. I leaned back against the railing to stretch my back. And an idiot. Yes, to an extreme in both cases. The owner of the park was Abel Bissett. Abel Bissett, related to that French billionaire, I'm guessing. Brandon nodded. Uh, Michael Bissett. He built this park for his son in the 70s. Abel was never really what we would call business inclined. I've always heard him described as simple. I can't believe the son of a billionaire lives in this area. Well, not anymore. He moved on decades ago. I shook my head in disbelief. Who would ever have thought that our simple little park was owned by a famous billionaire's son? Heck, I may even have sat next to him on rides and had no idea. You guys want to go again? Brandon yelled to the others as the ride again came to a stop. I'm ready to move on, Koji yelled back. Anybody want to ride again? Nope, a chorus of voices replied. It was near 5 o'clock when we finally arrived at Mayhem Mountain. As the sun began to set, a familiar panic and urgency welled in the pit of my stomach. It took a moment for me to realize that we didn't have to leave when the park closed this time, because the park didn't close. We could stay until sunup if we wanted to. As I eagerly approached the turnstile for Mayhem Mountain, Tyler spoke up behind me. Listen, can we run into town and grab something to eat before we ride Mayhem? You really want to ride Mayhem after we eat? Asked Koji. Ah, good point. There's only one loop. Danny rolled her eyes. Two, I said. Don't forget the inline roll. Yep, two, Scott answered. And plus it's a two minute ride. If your food isn't sitting well, you've got a long wait until it's over. Look, I said. Let's ride it a couple of times and then go eat. When we come back, we'll see how we feel. Everyone nodded and we started walking through the lineways up to the platform. When we reached the loading dock, I was excited to see our favorite green car sitting on the track. The front seat. Brandon and I yelled simultaneously as the train cars came into view and everyone behind us groaned. I'm staying here, Charlotte said. I'll just work the launch pad thingy. Still scared after all these years, Char? Scott teased her. Oh, shut up, burnout. Scott laughed and tousled her hair before running and jumping into the first car behind Brandon and I. Danny got in next to him and then Tyler and Koji took the second car. We pulled the shoulder restraints down and they locked in place. Ready? Charlotte asked. Yep, Brandon yelled back. Send the car through. Charlotte pulled the lever and the brakes disengaged. As the car moved forward, I turned to Brandon. And did we get the green car on purpose? I yelled at him as the coaster clacked around the load platform and began the clattery climb up the first lift hill. Yep, 
We sent cars through here all morning, but I made sure Rich knew to leave the green machine in the loading bay. Awesome. As the train climbed up the lift hill, I made no attempt to hide my utter glee. I looked out over the expansive park and couldn't believe that it was mine. Every track, every car, every turnstile, every screw. From the front gate to the overflow parking lot in the back, it was all ours. How I wished I could go back in time and tell a young me waiting in the two-hour line for Mayhem Mountain that one day you will own this place. And as we crested the hill and the train fell into the first drop, I realized that I essentially had gone back in time. At least I was screaming like a 12-year-old, as was everybody else behind me. When we dipped into the first tester hill and then banked hard and up to the second lift hill, we dropped from there down into the vertical loop, banked around a set of gift shops, up briefly and then down a small hill into the inline roll. When we arrived back at the loading bay, we were all screaming and whooping. Charlotte didn't even have to ask, just smiled at us and sent us through again. And we went twice more before we finally got off the ride. And Koji walked over to check out the control panel while the rest of us taunted my sister. You sure you don't want to go, Char? It's awesome. Nah, I'm good. I have no problem being the carny for this ride, she laughed. Oh, come on, Charlotte, just one time. One time and we'll leave you alone, Tyler urged. No, 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 no way, not interested. I'll ride anything else, though. Hey, do you guys know what track B is? Koji asked. Track B, what do you mean? Brandon walked over to Koji at the control board and raised an eyebrow. That's weird. It's probably just the track they used to get the cars into the storage bay. Scott said with a shrug. No, Koji said. That's called a transfer track. Track B has to be something else. Yeah, well, I'd been on this ride enough times to know that there is no other track. Yep, Tyler agreed with me. He has. So, should we try it? Brandon tested. No way, you idiot, said Charlotte. If you don't know what track B is, that means the contractors don't know about it either. Which means that it hasn't been inspected in at least 20 years. That's suicide. Look, Koji said. If track B exists, then even the most incompetent of engineers would have found it during an inspection. Yeah, and Rich cleared this entire ride. Brandon nodded. Probably just the ride in reverse. We're good. Well, we're in, announced Scott from the other side of the track. Though Danny didn't look quite on board with the idea. Mark? Tyler asked. Yeah, I guess I'm in. What's the worst that could happen? We get funneled into a repair bay. All right, then I'm in too, Tyler said hesitantly. Koji shrugged. Here goes nothing. He flipped the switch over to track B and a moment later a loud metallic scraping some distance away filled the park. The sound lasted almost a minute. I studied the familiar silver roller coaster under the pink sky of the setting sun, but I saw no physical changes to the track. I looked over at Brandon and a shrug of his shoulders told me that he didn't either. Shall we? Scott asked, gesturing to the train cars that we had just disembarked. I gave Charlotte a questioning look but she shook her head emphatically no. So it was just these six of us again. It's only right that you two take the bow of the ship. Tyler gave a mock salute, 
Oh, captains, my captains. I laughed and hopped into the right side of the front row. Brandon crawled into the seat next to me. Tyler and Koji got in behind us and Scott and Danny took the back. We pulled the shoulder bars down and they locked into place. Are you sure about this? Charlotte asked when everybody was settled. And Danny said something from her place a few rows back, but all that I heard was Brandon yelling, Pull it! The brakes were released and the train rolled away from the platform into the twilight of dusk. The lights had lit up on the track while we had been arguing and the roller coaster looked absolutely beautiful. I was filled with awe and reverence of what this place truly meant to me and my friends. It was a symbol of our youth and innocence and blissful ignorance of the world. It was our own little bubble of happiness. The coaster again climbed the lift hill and from the top, Brandon and I studied the track but in those few seconds I saw no difference. Brandon looked over and I shook my head at him disappointedly. And by the time that we had reached the vertical loop halfway through the ride, it was clear that there was no track B. But it was hard to be upset because I was still on Mayhem Mountain and still found it an impossible challenge not to smile. We banked around the now brightly lit gift shops up the small tester hill and then back down to the inline roll. Except the inline roll was suddenly above us. We had missed it. Instead, the track now descended into a large, square hole in the ground behind the gift shops, and we were headed directly into it. I was in too much shock to scream or even move. The black hole swallowed us in an instant and we descended into complete darkness. I felt a comfortable pressure leave my shoulders and realized that the shoulder bars had been released. I gripped the front lip of the ledge of my seat and heard the terrified screams of my friends behind me as the coaster suddenly spun into what felt like an inline roll. I was too scared to do anything but hold on for dear life though some part of my brain registered that the g-forces of the roll probably would have been enough to keep me in my seat if I had let go. Probably. We came out of the inline roll and dropped again, hard. As the roller coaster dropped the room suddenly lit up around us and I saw the track below arcing up into a light tester hill. As we hit the bottom of the hill the shoulder bars lowered mechanically. The car went over the small tester hill and then braked to start up another tall lift hill. I took my first breath since dropping through the ground and looked around, tuning out the screams of Danny and Tyler behind me. We were in what can be described as a cavernous room and I only assume it stretched to the farthest reaches of the park above. There were lots of vertical loops, high drops and sharp curves that put the track perpendicular to the ground. Throughout the entire sublevel building, lamps dotted the wall every 30 feet. They put out a dreary, yellowed glow for as far as the eye could see, but many were burnt out and in parts the track disappeared into darkness. But in the dull, yellow edges of the light, I saw something that registered in me a horror beyond death. Far away from us in a section of shadowy track, I saw the high crest of a peak hill which reached almost the ceiling of the giant room. And then the track just ended. Suddenly feeling the horrible reality of the world outside my mind began to bleed in. Danny was screaming uncontrollably, Tyler was crying, bawling even. Koji was yelling at Brandon who was looking straight at me, hitting my leg hard and repeating my name. As the cars continued to climb I finally gave him my attention. 
I didn't want to be alone in the fear anymore. What is this? Was all that I could think of to say. Hey, we have to get off this ride. We have to get off this ride, Mark. Yeah, I know, man. We're going to die. I know, man. I yelled as we reached the top of the lift hill and dropped over the other side. I squeezed my eyes shut until I felt the shoulder bars once again release and I bit my lip to keep from crying. I opened my eyes and choked as I watched the track ahead of us bend up into a vertical loop. I reached up and tried to pull the shoulder bar back down but it was locked into place. Hang on, hang on to the seats. I yelled as loud as I could. As we approached the loop, I felt the brakes engaging, slowing the car and a tow cable catch beneath my feet. We were being pulled up through the loop, but too slowly for gravity to keep us in our seats. As the train began to invert, I felt my feet rise from the floor of the car. My hair fell over my face and my butt left the seat. I closed my eyes and tried to block out the screams of terror from behind me. I concentrated on my death grip of the ledge of my seat as we rounded the track. We remained upside down for what felt like eternity. Finally the pressure began to ease. My butt dropped to my seat and my feet to the floor. The white noise subsided from my ears and I heard Koji screaming. Tyler, no, he fell out. God, he fell out. He's dead, man. He's dead. He hit the track down there. Brandon yelled at me, wide-eyed and crazy looking. I was finally seeing the Brandon from my youth. The shoulder bars descended again, this time locking in tighter. We came out of the loop and sped up and down several tester hills. I tried to study the track ahead of us as we went through the safer parts. I thought that I saw water reflecting off the metal rails somewhere in the distance. Brandon sobbed in his seat. Mark, what are we going to do? I don't want to die, man. I don't want to go. I don't know. I don't know what to do. I'm sorry. I'm so scared too. I answered him. We banked around a corner of the room and the shoulder bars released again. This time we dove into a curve that put the left side of the train parallel to the ground. And it was a long drop. I gripped the edge of the seat tightly as before but this time I kept my eyes open and was able to catch Brandon as he began to slip out of his seat. And by the time the train had righted itself I couldn't tell who had been lost. Most of the screaming behind me had turned to loud sobbing or silence. The shoulder bar didn't re-engage and I felt the car's brakes slow the train down again. I didn't have to look to know what was coming next. It was another inverted loop. This one was tall and large and I could tell that we would be upside down for longer. Someone behind me began screaming again, Danny I think, as I tried to take measured breaths and position my hurting hands back under the lip of the seat. Brandon did the same and looked over at me as the car started up the loop with tears streaming down his face. I don't want to die here, man. I shook my head back at him because I could think of nothing to say. I felt tears leave my own eyes as we reached the tipping point of the loop and my feet again left the floor. Before we were even completely upside down, I felt my back begin to slip down the seat. I thought that if I lost my grip, I could try to grab for the shoulder bars when I fell out of the car. The car suddenly stopped and I opened my eyes to see that we were completely inverted. I grunted loudly at the pain and immense effort that it was taking to keep my grip on the seat. The car started to move again slowly and I heard Brandon say something to me. 
I looked over at him just before he slid out of the car. One second he was there next to me, and the next he was falling, falling away from the car. I saw Brandon try to grab the shoulder bar on the way out, but he couldn't keep his grip on it. I watched him fall and saw him break his back on the track below and he stopped moving. I stared down at him as the car continued to move slowly around the loop and he stared back up at me, dead or dying. By the time the car hit him on the way out of the loop, he was completely gone. The shoulder bars re-engaged and we went through a dreadfully long period where nothing happened. We were secured in our seats by the restraints as the coaster spent what felt like several minutes racing over hills, banks, curves, and even an inline roll. Without the adrenaline pumping through my veins, I felt the shock begin to wear off. It was replaced by a panic and fear like I had ever experienced, and I decided that was the point of this section of track, to build and facilitate an unbearable fear. I felt the brakes engage finally and I looked ahead to find the loop that we were surely entering but there was none. We were high almost to the top of the ceiling and we slowed to a stop on a straightaway. Directly ahead was a drop at the bottom of the hill, a series of four different tracks with a transfer stack just before they split off. Each track had five or so feet of color, red, orange, green and blue before racing off in different directions. I felt an urgent shaking of my shoulder and turned around to hear what Koji was saying. Which track are we connected to? I looked at the transfer stack. Green. Where does green go? It was hard to hear him over the sound of Danny's sobbing from the second car. I tried to trace the green track through the building, constantly losing it and finding it again. I wasn't sure but it seemed to end at the lift hill that I had seen earlier. The hill with no track at the top. It ends at that hill. I yelled back at him and pointed. Danny cried out louder. While we were stopped, I rubbed my hurting hands together. As I looked down at them, I noticed something new in the car. At some point a small blinking panel had flipped over on the wall at the front of the car. It had four colored buttons and an old analog timer. The timer was so old and damaged that, though the numbers were clearly changing, I couldn't see how long we had. We get to choose, I said, and explained what I was looking at. Can you see which track ends where? Koji asked. I followed all the tracks as best I could, but the rails circled and slid in between each other. It was hard to tell which track went where. I think the blue track ends in that big pool in the corner. The red track ends in a wall and the orange one just drops into a hole in the floor like the one we came down here through, I think. There's no way out, dude, said Scott from the second car. His voice was unsettlingly calm. They're just telling us how we're going to die. We can still find a way out of this. I answered quietly more to myself than to him. Choose the pool, Scott said, and I could hear the tears in his voice. I've heard drowning isn't an awful death. I've heard it's calming at the end. No way, choose the hole in the floor, said Koji. It's possible that it drops down into another cavern like this. There might be more track which means more time to figure out how to live. You don't think we'd be the first to choose that option, do you? Scott asked him. And no one that went missing ever came back. There's just more death in that hole. 
I don't want to die like this, Koji begged, and at least it's a chance. Danny was still whimpering in the back and offered no suggestion. It seemed the decision was up to me and I had to make it fast. I knew I didn't want to die by dropping off the track. I didn't want to drown. Perhaps the quickest death was the wall. More than likely, we would all be killed instantly. Less suffering, less time to think about our fates. But the truth was, I wasn't entirely positive which track ended where. It was all educated guesswork and my time was up. The orange, let's go down to the second floor if there is one. Scott and Danny said nothing and Koji choked out the last words that I would ever hear him say. Push it before it chooses for us. Before I could think about it any longer, I pushed the orange button and committed us to whatever death it led to. We heard the metallic scraping of the track transferring below. Once the orange track was securely connected, the brakes in the car released and the train rode slowly toward the drop. Danny started screaming again. As we dropped on the hill, I got a better view of the orange track. There was a vertical loop ahead that didn't look as high as the others that we had been through. In fact, it looked like there was a chance that the fall wouldn't kill us. If it wasn't an optical illusion, and if the shoulder bar is disengaged for that loop, we might have a shot at living through this. I yelled back to everybody behind me. Let yourself fall out of the loop, the one up there. Nobody responded to me, which didn't matter because I didn't think that I would have the courage to let go of the seat anyway. We raced along the track, in and out of banks and curves, and one point we passed along the pool and I looked down. Below the water's surface, the track ended above an even deeper pool. I could see the shadows of several coaster cars at the very bottom. I suddenly felt the brakes engage and I realized that we were coming to the loop. I tested the shoulder bar by pushing up on it, but it stayed locked. I was somewhat relieved in that moment to know that I wouldn't have to make the decision to fall out now or gamble on the orange track. But suddenly, the restraints released. As we started up the loop, I gripped the lip of the seat tightly and turned my head back to look down. It looked like we were very high and I only hoped the ground was the loosely packed dirt that it looked to be. I had to choose now, the fall or the hole. I choose the fall. As I began to slide up the seat, I yelled at the others to let go and fall out of the car. And then I closed my eyes and let go. I felt my head crack the shoulder bar on the way out. It wasn't like a slow motion fall. It was over before I realized that I'd actually let go. One moment I felt an intense pain as my head hit the bar and in the same moment I realized that I was on the ground. I hadn't even had the time to realize the possibility of hitting the track below or getting run over by the cars. I opened my eyes in time to watch the cars speed over the track above me. The pain didn't hit me all at once. I had one long, blissful second before I felt it, and then I was in agony. I had hoped my body was so in shock that I wouldn't feel much of the pain, but I felt it all. I concentrated on keeping my eyes open and trying to catalog the damage. There was blood on my clothes, but I didn't know what part of my body it was coming from. I heard screaming as well, but I didn't know if it was in my head or coming from my friends as they approached the end. I didn't want to move, didn't think that it was safe to move, but I knew that I had to, if only to pull out my phone. 
With trembling fingers, I pulled the thing from my pocket and brought it to my face, trying to focus on the screen. But it was shattered and it refused to even turn on. I threw it away from me and then I realized the silence. Their ride had ended. With a great amount of effort, I rolled over onto my stomach and dragged my broken body across the ground toward where I thought I remembered seeing the hole. I crawled for what seemed like hours and maybe it was. Sometimes I tried to stand or even kneel but the pain in my back and ribs was too great. I passed out several times from shock and pain but eventually I made it to where the track had disappeared into the ground. I pulled myself to the edge and looked down inside the hole. The track ended at just below the surface. It was a natural shaft with walls made of rock. I don't know how deep it went and I didn't want to. It was a fate that I had only narrowly escaped. But then I thought my friends were down there and maybe somebody had survived. Koji! My voice echoed loudly down the shaft. No answer. Scott! Nothing. I reached for a nearby screw when I dropped it down the hole. It took half a minute to land and when it did, it was with a tank as it hit something metal. The small sound echoed up the shaft and out into the cavernous room, and I realized this place was built with acoustics in mind. I rolled over onto my back and studied everything that I could see from where I was, staving off my body's desire to pass out again. I felt nothing but numbness when I finally saw what I was looking for, a long panoramic window on the far wall. I knew what track B was for and I finally let myself slip away into the darkness. I remember very little of my rescue. There were lots of people in uniform and my sister yelling and pain, lots of pain. I was in and out on the way to the hospital but I remember that I passed through the room behind the window at some point. And from my stretcher through the chaos, I saw in that room a single chair facing the window. It was covered in a deep layer of dust. I was never visited by anyone official, let alone asked to give a statement. Charlotte stayed by my side at the hospital for months while I recovered. She wouldn't say much about that day, although she finally did tell me something. She said that they wouldn't let her ride with me to the hospital and that somebody had offered her a ride. On that drive, she had been spoken to by two people that had convinced her to never speak of what had happened and to convince me of the same. Whatever they threatened her with had her begging me to agree, and I did at the time. I am still to this day learning to walk without aid. I never saw Mayhem Mountain again. The loan defaulted and Adventure Valley was bought up by an unknown LOC, which bulldozed it and built a block of apartments over the top. They're still empty to this day. I don't like the dark anymore. It reminds me of the horror my friends experienced as they looked down and saw the track end before they disappeared into that hole. I try not to think about what they must have felt as they fell down the shaft in complete darkness, strapped to a roller coaster waiting for the terrible end. I wish that I had chosen the pool, if only to save them from that fate. As for the billionaire's son, he was only simple in the fact that he was a man of simple tastes, and he still is. I looked him up once only a few years ago. He owns several amusement parks now, 
all sizable but small enough to be popular only in their specific regions. In fact, one is not very far from where I live now. I've thought about going many times just to check, just to see. But then I realized that I probably didn't need to search all the rides in the park to know. Because I know that somewhere in that park, some ride in some corner has a track B. Today's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. Whether your resolution is to save money, eat better, or stress less, HelloFresh is here to help you do all three. Say hello to your most delicious year yet with fresh ingredients and chef-crafted recipes at a price that you'll like, delivered right to your door. Each HelloFresh box is packed with farm-fresh ingredients, and everything arrives pre-portioned for less hassle and less wasted food. Don't let recipe boredom strike because HelloFresh has more options than ever before. Dig into their biggest menu yet with over 45 dinner options to choose from weekly. My go-to meal recently has been the pub-style shepherd's pie. It's hearty and filling which is perfect for the colder weather. To get started, go to hellofresh.com slash creepfree and use code creepfree for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while the subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at hellofresh.com slash creepfree with code creepfree. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. My grandfather's journal from an expedition to the North Pole has left me terrified. Written by Kyle Harrison The holidays have never exactly been joyous times for my family. In fact, it's safe to say that they've actually been the exact opposite. My father and grandfather both were decorated soldiers. Dad was with the British Armed Forces and Granddad Francois was with the French Foreign Legion. While we were proud of them both, it meant holidays were often spent away from family. Although their commanding officers often told them that there was no need, they would always put duty first. Both of them were consumed with it so much that it cost them their lives. I'll never forget finding Dad's body dangling beneath a mistletoe when we drove up to the base to surprise him on Christmas Eve. That was only three years ago, and the way that his eyes bulged as his corpse just swayed gently in the air, the image will never leave my brain. Mom was in tears. She was delirious. She even kissed the corpse she wanted so badly for him to be faking it, but it was far too late. He left a suicide note along with a journal from Grandad. I found them both under his pillow along with a revolver. Perhaps that had been first choice before hanging himself, uh, maybe he had wanted a quick death. So why had he chosen a slow and painful one instead? I didn't mention the journal to mom and we returned home to try to find solace on Christmas morning. I tried to understand the journal but it was written in French and honestly with everything else that we had just experienced. I forgot about it. I only recently rediscovered the journal, a wave of old memories washing over me. The suicide note in particular never left my mind. Jack. I don't know where to begin. 
I cannot ask for your forgiveness because of what I've done. Instead, I leave behind the legacy of our family such as it is. I hope you find a way to break us from it. I'm sorry. K. I didn't really put the dots together that he wanted me to translate the journal, but my girlfriend had been taking French and offered to help. Uh, maybe you can put these old demons to rest, she suggested. As she painstakingly wrote down the translation, I copied it for her posterity. I think you'll find, once you read what it contains, that it will haunt you for the rest of your days as well. For that, I apologize, but it is the only thing that I have to give this world. Warheit On the 14th of December, 1941, Commander's Log Intel has been given to us of a potential German threat amassing north of Iceland in the Arctic Sea. With recent alliances made from other Allied forces, we have been able to secure a private ship to the south tip of the island, the city of Selfoss. It is our hope to gather information concerning the German presence there and determine their goals in the Arctic region. 15th of December 1941, Captain's Manifest of the SS Etoile Polaire. Our crew consists of only 12 souls. Command views this mission to be of utmost importance and therefore any and all reports will remain classified until further notice. None of us are sure what we'll find out in the frozen waters, but the Demi Brigade is relieved to be handling this duty away from the battle lines. Perhaps it will secure a victory for us against the Axis powers through a different approach. I pray to our Lord this is so. My first officer, Francois Christensen, shall be handling the logs to ensure that the journey is accurate. We must make certain that everything is accounted for as we face this menace. 15th of December, Captain's Private Diary The others of the crew have already begun to speculate what our mission might be. Considering America's recent alliance with our neighboring countries, it is no stretch of the imagination to assume that Germany is considering a counterattack. The Arctic would provide ample area for them to perhaps create a secret base and stockpile for such an offensive move. We will be keeping radio silence until our arrival in Iceland, which undoubtedly will also make tensions high among the men. The 15th of December, 2nd Officer Francois Christensen, Personal Journal. Having reviewed the captain's note, it occurs to me that he failed to present a list of names of those who are aboard our fine vessel. I see fit to subscribe their names here, for the merits of history and in case the good lord does not bring us home altogether. Captain Donahue Moreau, age 42. Second officer, Francois Christensen, age 37. Navigational officer, Emmanuel Levine, age 35. Lieutenant Colonel André Dupont, age 38. Brigadier Chief Robert Tumont, age 32. Corporal Gerard Simeon, age 30. Major Pierre Lucard, age 39. Master Sergeant Jacques Garner, age 41. Brigadier Richard Blanchant, age 27. First Class Legionnaire Jean-Baptiste Beaufort, age 27. 
second-class legionnaire Jean-Paul Leroux, age 25, commander Jean-Luc Nisfor, age 47. I pray all these men and myself make it to the northern reaches safely and back home in time for family reunions on Christmas morning. By daylight, we reach Softloss. We will meet the German defector, Leon Engel, who first contacted command about the situation approximately three fortnights ago. Let us hope this is not a trap. 16th of December, arrival at Softloss. The people here seem wary of foreigners, most likely due to the recent German incursions. John Paul speaks good Icelandic and has managed to discover where our contact is staying. It would seem that according to the locals, the Germans frequented this area between October and July the most, stopping here and in a small fishing village before heading forward north, past Greenland. Commander Jean-Luc asked to confirm that was correct, puzzled by their destination. There's nothing further north but sheets of ice and treacherous water. Do they seek a way through the northeast passage, perhaps? Levine said as he checked his map. Jean-Luc and the captain agreed that there was no need for speculation since we would be speaking to the German defector within an hour. Statement given by German officer Leon Engel. Let it be known to all men that the words I speak now to this legion and the allies they represent is of my own free will and I put faith in their promise of exoneration and protection from the German Reich in exchange for the information I provide. The operation was codenamed Jotun to represent the hope they had for the miracle they sought. Shortly after the rise of the fewer, my apologies, the Chancellor, he took a keen interest in several esoteric projects across different scopes, such as Egypt, Africa, and even Asia. This corner of the world and its legends did not escape his interest, though. He felt that every legend in the world held grains of truth, and was searching steadfastly for a land written in times past encased entirely by the ice far to the north. Hyperborea, as some ancient texts seemed it, a world where gods and devils dwell. This land beyond the wall of ice and hidden from the world, I tell you sincerely and with my hand to God, it exists and it bursts nightmares that I think ought not to be spoken of. However, the Chancellor has decreed that the operation must continue, despite all the evidence that this will end in hell for Germany. I left before things got out of hand and it has been nearly a month since and my comrades have not returned. It is my belief that they have gone too far in their testing and must be stopped. I pass along to Commander Nisfor an adjusted chart that will provide safe passage through the ice sheets to this unholy island. I cannot speak of what dangers they may find there, only pray that they are swift in bringing about their demise. Note: The man swiftly used a cyanide pill whenever we continued to press him for details of the German experiment. His last word was vowing to take the devil to hell with him as he died. The 16th of December, Departure from Soft Laws With the chart given by Engel, God rest his soul, we had managed to gather meager supplies and ship off towards the ice sheets past Greenland. It'll be a treacherous journey and the weather will likely cause delays in our arrival and departure from this land. 
Captain Dudeny has already informed the men the likelihood of a return to France by Christmas is impossible. Spirits, however, remain stalwart as we believe that, with the loss of communication by his former comrades, there may be little threat waiting for us in this uncharted frozen kingdom. 18th of December, Captain's Log We've made good time into the Arctic Ocean itself, pushing past Greenland without a hitch. A heavy fog has hit us and there is thick ice all around, making our journey further north slow but steady. It'll be difficult for us to follow the chart given my angle with minimal visibility, but we're doing our best to rely on the equipment aboard our vessel to ensure that we make safe passage. 20th of December, Captain's Log Levine has grown concerned with our navigational equipment. There appears to be malfunctions with the compass and we cannot ascertain our location. He speculates that we may be circling the main northern circle of the Arctic, but with the fog now growing so thick, it is impossible to be sure. 20th of December, Second Officer's Personal Log The crew have grown anxious and superstitious with the hours and days running into each other. Cold, bitter weather has forced us to remain still amid a lonely ocean, with no signs of life anywhere. The command insists that we're close to the coordinates for the supposed secret island, but there is no way of being certain. Morale is attemptuous at the moment with supplies beginning to run low. We will need to hasten our journey if we wish to make a steady and peaceful trip home. 21st of December, Discovery of Uncharted Island At approximately 2300 hours late last night, Jean-Baptiste was assisting Emmanuel with the charting our course, believing that we may need to turn around to port due to the foul weather, when we picked up a radio transmission from what we soon discerned was a German U-boat. After a short debate between Captain Dudeny and the commander, we altered course to find the source of the transmission. Major Lucard, our only officer fluent in German, quickly determined that it was an SOS signal on repeat. 100 hours we found the edge of a small island, about 13 nautical miles from where we first started receiving the signal. We have also managed to find the U-boat, not far from the shore completely entrapped in the ice. The captain has ordered us to search it first to determine if there are any officers still aboard. From our current perspective it is difficult to determine how wide the island is. There are no distinct landmarks off in the distance except for the rigid lines in the ice running northeast of the U-boat. Levine has speculated that before the submarine was trapped, this is the likely route that it took to their outpost. I can surmise that we'll be asked to follow the course after surveillance is finished of the submarine. On a personal note, the lack of life and sheer desolation of this tundra strike me as odd especially if there is a steady German presence here for the better part of three months. It would seem, though, that they did not feel the need to incur into the landscape itself, instead beginning their vile harvesting of the island deeper within. 22nd of December, Transition Across the Island We found little but old freight within the U-boat which had added to the mystery, it would seem they were shipping out large amounts of coal from somewhere within the central island, for what though was uncertain, 
There were no officers aboard, and Levine believed that the ice likely froze so quickly during their departure that their only choice was to retreat back to their base. Corporal Simeon said that he could tell the U-boat was also being used as a floating zoo. At first we assumed this was for sled dogs to get across the tundra, but Simeon said the areas within the boats were far too large for canines. He said they had to be a larger mammal of some kind, perhaps a bovine. Later we were able to find parts of antler husk along the root of the river that had frozen over, leading us to believe the animals they were using were likely Canadian caribou or Icelandic reindeer. Update. We found the carcass of such a beast about one hour after this hypothesis was theorized. It would seem that the U-boat was meant for their exit from this island, and an unanticipated event forced them to remain. The poor thing looked sickly. Most of its nose was a dark bloody red as though infected, and it appears the Germans only killed it out of mercy. The landscape is brutal and blank but it is likely that we should find the outpost and not far ahead, since the river itself we walked across is all but lost amid the sheets. 1100 hours. Arrival at German outpost for Operation Jotun. Finally, our destination in sight and what a spectacle of industry it is, especially against this bleak backdrop. The building resembled a mashup between a factory and a train depot with iron railings heading further north into the fog. Yet we saw no life stirring at all as we proceeded toward the closest entrance. The place had a smell of death, a lingering presence of fear that I have not yet had since being in the front lines. And there was little or no stirring of life, just worn out machinery and cranes and tools scattered about. Whatever the SS was doing here, they were busy up until the moment that it stopped. 1200 hours. A discovery by Brigadier Blanchant, there is evidence of arson in the lower portions of the factory, and we have found several corpses buried under piles of debris. None of them, however, appear to be a full-grown man and none are wearing the German uniforms. These are smaller creatures, perhaps no larger than a six-year-old child. However, their features resembled that of old men. They all had strange garb on and chains fettered to their feet to keep them working. Dupin found what he believes to be the results of their labor, a small cargo bay filled with sleighs that have strange toys of all make and model hoarded on them. Upon closer inspection, we found that the toys were all made with strange black sand that burned when we touched it. First-class man Jean-Baptiste claims that he could not feel his fingers any longer after exposure. With none of us skilled in medical treatment, command has dictated that we steer clear of the cargo hold until we determine further what the Germans were attempting to create. 1400 hours. Captain Dudeny has chosen to take Levine and Robert and follow the rails that run north. We believe that the incident here was purposeful to destroy evidence of the SS experiments and the Germans are likely elsewhere on the island. We managed to find scraps of journals that are written in older Slavic, but unfortunately none of us are familiar enough with the language. We can't however determine that they were written by a German scientist, for his seal was on the portion of the burned journal that we found. Christoph Nicholas Although I have no way of being certain, 
I have a suspicion this man is the one responsible for these experiments. I have chosen to stay at the workshop while the captain presses forward. We are expected to pursue his interest in three days' time if we do not hear back from him. In the meantime, we will collect as much information here from the factory to determine the German plan. 24th of December Commander Niesfor has given us relief due to the worsening condition of Jean-Baptiste. His entire hand has taken a more wooden appearance, not allowing him to move the appendage and his pain has increased tenfold. Garner and Jean-Paul have begun to search the lower parts of the workshop to determine if there's anything here which might spare him more misery. 900 hours. Jean-Paul entered the room where we had set up base camp, babbling deliriously about soldiers in the lower basement of the factory. Immediately, myself and the commander went to investigate. About three stories down, we found the soldiers that he spoke of, except they no longer had human skin. Much like Jean-Baptiste, these men had their bodies completely turned into wood, yet they still had their uniforms on, as though the transformation were sudden. There were dozens of them, all lined up perfectly like good tin soldiers. Have mercy, Lord Jesus, Commander Niesfor declared. And then we heard the rattling of chains. Garner had come with us and used a flashlight to peer deeper into the abyss. All of us collectively holding our breath as we saw something tall and monstrous chained to the back wall. It had shaggy hair like that of a billy goat and stood at least nine feet tall with jagged curved horns atop its head that twisted backward. But its face, its face was that of a man. The second class man raised his weapon to fire and did so repeatedly. It seemed as though our wounds would inflict his body but then heal rapidly. Amid the shots, we heard the strange creature shriek a single word. Help! Dear Lord, it was a man. A human experiment. 1200 hours. Command is requested that nobody else come down to the basement as we interrogate the strange half goat man that is chained here. The thing appears to be half sane and half filled with rage as well, struggling to break free as we speak to it and learn how it was caught. Most of what it says is gibberish, but we are gathering a few key details about the island. Initially, when we saw the factory in the train yard, we had assumed this was evidence of German occupation, but the goat man states otherwise. The little men that we tried to enslave made this workshop long before we ever stepped foot in this frozen hell, he told us. He was talking about the strange distorted dwarves that we had seen throughout the factory. The explosion had killed most of them, as he had explained. That was the intention. Not from this earth, was what he told us when we asked where these people were from. Garner confirmed later with an autopsy that their biological makeup was nothing like ours. But there were also modifications. It was obvious that these were not the first generation of creatures that had been here. They were trying to overcome the cold, the Goatman told us, and they were hard at work perfecting a way to spread their new spores across the world. We spoke about how the sand that we saw in the workshop above was apparently a death sentence for mankind. The tin soldiers that we had seen earlier were evidently what remained of the German officers. They had no idea the creatures were infecting them. 
Is there a cure? I recall Jean-Baptiste asking. Dupont had insisted that he be made aware of the situation, especially because of his worsening condition. The goat man grew violent and shook and bellowed, the interrogation clearly over. But the rage that he reacted with also told a story for Jean-Baptiste. The man is as good as dead. 1300 hours. We heard the sound of a gunshot and thought that we were under attack. Rushing to the surface of this forsaken ice sheet to see instead a tragedy has unfolded. Jean-Baptiste has taken his service pistol and ended his life before his body succumbs to the strange virus that is spreading across his body. 1500 hours. We have all agreed that we can't get much more out of the goat man and with the recent loss of life, it was clear that remaining at the workshop might be unwise. The command has made the decision to follow Captain Dudeny. This results in a bit of division among the men. After Jean-Baptiste's suicide, the thought of discovering further nightmares leaves a bad taste in our mouth. Lucard has also voiced the opinion that it is inhumane to let the Goatman stay here and suffer further, despite the fact that releasing the half-beast could harm our expedition. Anise Forest promised that once we reconvene with the captain, we will attempt to make camp and have a makeshift Christmas dinner. And for now, this appeased the squabbling men. We will use the rails to make certain that we do not lose track of our position in the snow. Although it would be wiser to leave at first light, most of the men are anxious to leave this strange place behind. I cannot blame them. I hear moans in the factory, my brain tells me that it's the wind. But could it also be the tin soldiers and wooden puppets that were once humans? I recognize the Germans are our enemy in this war. But what befell them here is beyond words. Horrible and tragic. I have a feeling as we pursue the captain, we will likely find more of the same. 1600 hours. As predicted, night is falling fast over the northern Arctic Circle. As a result, visibility is scarce. It's difficult to be sure if we're making much progress to follow the captain, and a growing blizzard has made it ten times harder. And Garner has made some speculation about the rail itself, believing it may have been built sometime during the initial Industrial Revolution era. If so, then it would seem that this island was discovered prior to us, and was then later abandoned, I told him. And perhaps what the goat man said was true. Perhaps they feared the creatures here. DuPont suggested. 1700 hours. We crossed the edges of an icy lake. It'll be dangerous to steer too far from the railroad. We felt that doing so would be better than plunging into the icy depths below. As a result, we found the remains of a derailed locomotive. Sometime in the past, it was going too fast and it derailed, sliding as far on the lake as it could. I noticed that there were five passenger cars, all made of steel that looked to be at least a hundred years old. Their blue paint was all nearly worn off, and yellow lettering was rusted and torn, making it impossible to determine much about the express train, except that it was clearly meant to haul large amounts of coal that we had seen in the workshop because it had just spilled out near the locomotive itself. It was also evident the damage done would mean the train could never recover. 
perhaps this was a result of whatever incident happened at the workshop. We've chosen to continue to march north tomorrow and use the passenger cars as a means of shelter. The temperature outside is far too dangerous to keep going and the darkness itself could trick us more than the icy lake. Another man has passed due to the dangerous nature of the black sand that seems to be everywhere in this frozen hell. Brigadier Blanchant chose to try and use what was left of the engine compartment in the train to heat the coal that we found with dire results. The coal when heated crumbled and released black smoke directly into his face. He immediately began to choke and shriek until he was suffocating and unable to make a noise. We watched in abject horror as it turned him into wood before our very eyes. Although it took place swiftly, I can say by what I saw in the man's eyes that every single second of the transformation was filled with pain. The 25th of December. The Christmas morning had not started off well. Two more of our officers are dead as a result of a strange attack in the icy wilderness beyond the lake. Jean-Paul and the commander himself have all been taken from us. Nisfor had ordered the second-class man to join in a search of the area for any possible sources of food. Instead, they were attacked by something under the snow itself. Dupont was with them and barely survived, describing the incident and talking like a madman. I wish I could describe it properly, he said. It looked like the strange white potter had opened its jaws and swallowed them up. All that we found left were their clothes and tossed out bones, their bodies consumed by the powder as we tried to further north. Some of the crew wished to turn around and report all of this to NATO or the Crown. I'm not against that decision as long as the details of our mission remain classified. However, others that are here insist that we must head toward a nearby mountain and search for the captain there. Due to this argument, being the new leader of the group, I have allowed two of the men to make back for the factory that we left. At least, there was relative safety there. Dupont and Lacard left with a few words to those of us that are still here. I have given them express orders to remain in this ice sheet until a week past New Year's, unless supplies are leading to starvation. This has given us a deadline to discover the truth or die trying. And Dupont seems to have lost his sanity due to the encounter with the unknown snow beast, and I warn Lucard to watch him closely. I pray the time will be enough to find the captain. An unknown hour. The mountain, a twisting trail of rock and snow and ice and foreboding dark clouds, feels like a trap awaiting our intrusion, but we have little choice to search elsewhere. The rails lead straight into the depths of the crumpled caverns. One way or another, we will discover what secrets are within this cold hell. Update As we have gone further into the depths of the mountain, we have found evidence of ancient civilization there. We followed the rails as far as they would go inward, until they stopped at some sort of processing station, where smaller carts were placed on various tracks, that ran deeper into the dark mountain. Once there, we found where Levine had left markers to keep track of their descent and followed the path into a staircase. At the bottom of the staircase, we found the signs of this ancient race, a clear indication of life from the stars that was seen on the walls of the rooms where 
I believe the captain and the others briefly set up camp. We have chosen to stay here and do the same until tomorrow. As time passes, Garner and Simeon study the carvings on the walls of the cave. They depict humanoid creatures of two varying species, and much like Egyptian hieroglyphics, they seem to show some of the history of their time here on our planet. One species of drawings is similar to these small long-eared corpses that we found in the death workshop, and the other is far larger and covered in fur. It seems that the two species may once have been enemies. For in the drawings, we found that their arrival here was likely a pure accident. A war above that crashed them to our world, Garner theorized. As Simeon noticed that the larger aliens took on a more dominant leadership role whereas the smaller became working class. But they both seemed to suffer from prolonged exposure to the cold, or so the etchings seemed to convey. This is because of what appears to be a map to a particularly interesting area below us, where it shows some sort of biome created to house a warmer climate. We have agreed to find this underground forest, as it seems likely that is where Moray and the others would have gone next. Unknown Hour This is a personal notation to explain the inability for the marking of logs. Ever since we entered the mountain, I cannot be certain of the position of the sun end. I have not told the others this, but it almost feels like time itself works differently within this place. From what we have seen in our trek through these caves, it seems likely the aliens dismantled their flying craft and used it for various functions, one of which I may believe might distort parameters of time and space. I could also simply be losing my sanity due to all the strange things that we have seen. Until I can further verify, I will no longer attempt to catalog the passing of time. Update. After sleeping, we descended northeast using what Garner could discern from the map. It was about an hour later that we noticed a change in temperature, and then we found the forest. It is a sprawling and vast network of trees that resemble German firs. There is one massive tree near the center of the forest that towers above all of them, and almost gives off an ethereal glow. The roof of the chamber also resembles the Star of David, and seems to somehow provide light and warmth to this beautiful and seemingly idyllic landscape. Once amid the trees, we find further evidence that this entire biome was created by the aliens. Although the trees resembled the kind that we were familiar with from afar, a closer examination shows that they are certainly not native to Earth, but mimics or hybrids of some kind. We have also found what appears to be more markers left behind by Levine, and our spirits are beginning to lift back up. Could we be close to being reunited? Update. It's a Christmas miracle. If one can be found amid these horrors, we have rendezvoused with Captain Murray and Robert. Unfortunately, Levine is no longer with them. We are eager to exchange information about what has transpired, but we also feel the need to camp, rest and eat before entering the large, central tree. I must apologize, friends, that while translating this journal, another discovery was made. Approximately around the time of this log and for that reason, I want to include those details here. Despite how we lost my dad, my mother still wants to attempt to have a small Christmas meal. The event is somber and short, filled more with tears than mirth. 
During the evening, the conversation turned to what we were doing with the journal that he had kept as his there at desk door and I admitted a few scarce details to mom. She seemed confused, clearly not aware of any of this, but mentioned that she had recalled my father would often work during the holidays and never speak of his military activity around that time of year. She even admitted that she also resented that he was never there to be with us as children during this time of year. I found that information relevant somehow to this ongoing discovery, and so I pass it on to you as we get to the darkest chapters of my grandfather's mission. I now return to transcribing his journal and I will leave my concluding thoughts for later. A Statement by Captain Murray After Christmas dinner, we chose to mark a few graves for the lives that we've lost and I told Francois of the evil that we found below us. The central tree serves as a throne of some kind for a massive entity that slumbers near the core of the fir. It resembled that of a beehive and it is my belief the entity itself was much like a queen to the diminutive race of slaves. It was a captive to the larger aliens who used her continued presence as a way to maintain control over the long-eared. One species was scientific in nature, the other militaristic. The simian could not help but to draw comparisons to the roles that we French play in this ongoing war with the Germans. How we serve a queen crown and they, a tyrannical and heartless dictator. In fact, another comparison could be inferred by Garner's autopsy of a large humanoid. There were plenty of well-preserved corpses near to the core, you see. Left here to possibly be converted into the coal that we've been discovering. For the more they decompose, they resemble the dark stones. The powder, it seems, is dried up blood from their organs. And that is where the similarities with the German Reich exist because the large green furred aliens have hearts that are three times smaller than us of humans. Garner says that this is likely why the cold was especially detrimental to them. The slave workers, on the other hand, seem to have adapted quite well over their centuries here. There is, however, more that must be said about the evils of this alien race and the comparatively similar situation with the German Chancellor in his efforts to create a pure race. For deeper in the core, that is where Levine and I found the abominations that are clearly an attempt by the large aliens to crossbreed with us as a species. It is to this ungodly prison that we now march for there is evidence of a large furnace even further down that I think we can use to create a collapse of this mountain. Yes, I fully intend to destroy this wintry abyss and of all the things we have seen here by overloading that component. I believe this is actually what the Germans intended to do, forming an alliance with the slave race to take down the mountain. An irony considering their own history of violence and dominance. Perhaps in this cold and nightmarish place, they saw the true mirror of themselves and recognized their errors. But there is an obstacle, that which killed Levine and stalks the coal mine below us. I do not have a proper description at this time other than that it is a massive predator that hungers for flesh and blood. How long it has lived here, who can say? Nothing here is defined by the human concepts of death. So for now I believe it is to be practically a godlike beast. Therefore, I have told the men that we will not engage but rather hide, attempt to cross to the next chambers where the prisoners are kept, and then blow this place to kingdom come. 
Should it be that we are still within when that moment comes? I think I speak for all of us when I declare that. We would rather be buried alive than for any of these monstrosities to one day find a way to cross to our land. Update. The beast that Captain Murray warned us of also took his very life as we crossed this large valley of coal to the prison. The room was a crypt, Simeon said, recalling what we had learned from the corpse. They dumped their ashes into the mine to become the heat for the tree above. An endless cycle that kept the core tree alive and also themselves. As we crossed the coal, we tread upon the dead. This was once a thriving civilization. Halfway across, the beast announced itself with a yowl. It towered over all of us, making us feel like ants, and it had eyes as feral and hungry as a tiger. Black as the coal itself, it chased us down. The Captain Murray demanded that we get to the prison and follow the mission. He chose to be the one to sacrifice himself for us. The giant cat could smell his blood on his own worn clothes, and it immediately pounced crushing him and ripping him with claws larger than my thigh. His screams echoed as we hurried to the next chamber. With the predator distracted, we found a way to seal that room away, caught our breath in the prison's antechamber, and then steeled ourselves for what was to come next. Captain Murray was a brave man for this. May he go to heaven with full honors. A statement of Jacques Garner the lads which I've chosen to call the ones we found in this dungeon are a frightening reality to behold. While Captain Murray told us this was evidence of human crossbreeding, to see it for myself and the terrifying results, it makes me despise these creatures even more. The hybrids are deformed Icelanders that likely stem from the 17th century or earlier. Their clothes are tattered and barely cling to their flesh, but they do somewhat resemble human men. All of them are stunted mentally, performing the same tasks over and over again ritualistically in their cages. One for example constantly slamming a door that leads nowhere, and another was always chewing on a candle and then spitting it out and doing it again. This might be what little is left of their mind that is struggling to cling to this world, repetitively grasping at a fond memory from before they were so crudely born. This begs the uncomfortable question of whom the father is to these monstrous souls, if they indeed have any. How did they convince any human to ever go along with relations with that queen beast from above? Surely, only a madman would be willing to do so. Update. We have found the Germans, or rather, what is left of the regiment. Garner took blood samples of other prisoners besides the 13 older detainees and has found that almost all of the hellish beasts in this place are the soldiers that we were hunting down. He was able to do so using equipment in a laboratory which belonged to the scientist behind much of this, Kristoff, and even found filming equipment. It would appear that throughout these new experiments, Kristoff chose to log the footage. We are taking them back with us when we leave to be delivered to the Crown. There is no sign of the scientist himself. Further update. Speak of the devil and he shall appear. Christoph Nicholas, the English scientist that was behind the transformation of the Germans, has made an entrance. An elevator of sorts that Simeon found close to the back of the lab opened around our typical mealtime. 
and the obese man entered wearing a jolly smile on his face. We immediately raised weapons on him, shot that he was apparently moving about the mountain freely without concern. He advised us that we should lower our guns and we soon found that he was flanked by dozens of the long-eared aliens. They disarmed us swiftly, causing Nicholas to laugh joyously. And despite this turn of events, he has not taken our other materials and seems relatively uninterested in our arrival here, allowing us to keep speaking to each other and I can keep notes. It would seem that he and the slave race are preparing for a departure from this place soon though, and I'm going to attempt a truce to see if we can uncover the full extent of what transpired here along with their plan. The Statement of Christoph Nicholas, Age Unknown I will not hide the fact that I betrayed the Germans, as you may have surmised. I was once their prisoner the same way my elfish friends were the slaves of their masters in this twisted cold society. They brought me here for my intellect, me and my wife. She has passed now some months back, but during our short time here we managed to make alliance with these smaller race that the Germans were attempting to control for their arms race. You spoke of discovering the U-boat. The animals they were harvesting were the key to their new form of weaponry, biological warfare that could cross borders without detection by radar. You see, my French colleague, the reindeer that are now nothing more than skeletons had developed the uncanny ability to fly. With this miracle of flight, the Germans could sail across the Atlantic and bomb Washington in the West relatively easily. Do you not agree? But taming the beast was impossible. The aliens told them that the black sand of the corpses could be used as feed for the bees. A partial lie my wife and I later found out. While the sand could control the animals, it would have terrible consequences for our species. It was actually her death by the sand that led me to propose a plan to the elves. I would help them to poison the Germans and destroy their factory. The dangerous new weapon they made could not be used on American soil, or any frontier of war for that matter. They agreed to this and we revolted some time ago. Since then, while trapped here in the ice, I've been attempting to unlock the secrets of their masters for the betterment of mankind. I can see of course the dangers of this hybridization and what it has done to some of the soldiers here. It is plainly obvious that much more experimentation has to be done. But these otherworldly creatures have the ability of immortality. That much is clear when you realize that they've been trapped here for far longer than any of us can conceive. To be able to spit death in the face, it would be aghast of me to ignore such a scientific discovery. For this reason, I beg you understand why I used the Germans as my first test subjects. I thought modifications from the previous lads would help to improve their odds of maintaining humanity, but as you can plainly see, they are further demented and distorted. I know you seek to leave this place and while it pains me to not see this through, I will oblige you as you see that there is no threat here. I ask humbly to let me stay. I do not need to fear for my own life as the workers have taken care to view me as their savior. Is what I've done to the Germans something that I should be held accountable for? Well, possibly. But is it any less than their crimes against humanity? The concentration camps would beg to differ. The courts can decide my fate and 
It should not be your duty to haul me in. Your mission, gentlemen, is at an end now. Your crew is sparse as it is, and I'm sure you are well aware that it would be difficult to leave the ice with so few of you alive. Taking me would only further slow down that path to victory. Let us part ways now, giving tidings of hope and joy for the holidays for a brighter future. Update I have spoken at length to Simeon and Garner. We agreed that we cannot allow Nicholas to remain. While some of his account feels truthful, other details still remain hidden. Such as his ability to be able to not be attacked by the monsters, we have encountered why he feels confident in his own abilities to live here with this alien species. Our plan is a very simple one. We shall fake our departure and set the charges that Captain Murray gave us at the core tree near to this queen. By destroying her, Garner believes that we can sever the hive mind of the workers and nullify them. It will likely kill them and while this fate is cruel, considering their long and hard history as slaves here, we can't treat them as moral men or allies the way that Nicholas has. The mere fact that in the distant past they somehow managed to destroy their masters before the Germans or Nicholas ever arrived is proof of their superior minds and ferocity. While they may seem harmless to the Englishmen, I will not be fooled into allowing a future where their continued existence is a threat to our world. If there is any doubt about Nicholas, we solidified his madness with the discovery a few chambers further in. It was a few days that we spent there in the lab, treating him as a friend to gain trust and watching as he and the aliens tirelessly focused on their work. And then he finally left us alone. During that tenure, however, Robert was quite certain that he was hearing strange wailing from within the casing of the wall of one room. He claimed they sounded like the cries of an infant. We decided to tear down the wall and by mercy there was an actual nursery on the other side. The infant we recovered as pale skin and does not appear to be deformed like the others here. It is probably nine months old and judging by its appearance and size, it has been moderately fed in this isolation. We will take this captive baby with us as we venture to the tree. We used the elevator that Nicholas did to make it back up to a different portion of the forest biome and then prepared the charges for the task that we must finish. The trees are silent and I imagine they're watching and waiting expectantly for the death that we will give them. I have chosen to personally protect the infant until we can leave and give what little rations I have left to the boy. Past New Year's, 1942 I can only describe what happened in the tree as a failure even though we successfully laid the charges. It seems that even though the hive appeared to be constantly slumbering, we were wrong about believing the entity was in fact the queen that controls the workers. Her presence was somehow connected to the forest that was thriving and actually watching her move. When we attempted to destroy the massive, bulbous entity in the central tree, the feral predator from the mines announced its return. It had found us perhaps being alerted telepathically to the threat and used its rage and hunger to kill Simeon and Robert. The hive presence shook and giggled in its slumber as my two comrades were taken away by the giant cat, and then shot out long splinters of itself against Jacques and I. The sharp wood pierced our skin and had us limping through the forest, delirious and tearing voices from amid the firs. It is because of this attack that we have discovered the truth about the forest, 
due to the whispers that surrounded us. McQueen was now connected to us via the strangest slivers of wood that managed to plunge into our body. We can hear her desperate call to constantly warm her body. We even began to hallucinate lost in that forest, seeing strange apparitions of sugar plum fairies, candy cane, and other nonsensical whimsy. Eventually, we were found by Nicholas himself. The old man had a belly laugh as he discovered our attempt to destroy his new home had failed. The workers shackled us and we were forced into a small carrier freight car that is bound back for the factory beyond the mountain. It is across the icy lake that we learned more about Nicholas, for as his prisoners he became confident enough to confide in us that he had fabricated some of the story that he first told. He claimed that we hadn't been ready to accept our role, but now that the queen had saw fit to bring us into the fold, and was even willing to allow me to write notes of the tale he wished to tell. The world is ready, he declared, to hear the truth of Christmas. He claimed that he was no longer a man thanks to his alliance with the worker aliens and that he first encountered them during the second century. Yes, I do not lie, the old man was declaring that he had survived that long down there through the ages. He was once a bishop of the church during a tumultuous era of the Roman Empire, and would accompany centurions on expeditions in the northern sea due to his early days as a sailor and fisherman. This man that was now godless even claimed that he was aware of the birth of Christ, the Son of God and new remnants of the apostles. Much that he said has been distorted over the ages concerning the Messiah, and according to his story the Divine Son was in fact the first encounter with aliens that our species had. He encountered them when his own ship crashed on the icy shores of the island, and the Roman soldiers all perished due to either the waves, the cold, or the Roman snow beast. As the only survivor, he tried his best to find shelter and he eventually passed out. When he did wake, the long-eared workers were the ones that he had to thank for his rescue. The large green aliens immediately saw him as a threat, their constant war still an ongoing struggle at that moment. But what the green aliens did not know was Nicholas was also a very keen observer. He immediately offered his aid to them in their plight against the temperature, and he saw that he could use this false alliance to bring them to ruin. Slowly, he kept close to the worker force and then when the moment was right, they killed their larger masters. When we asked him how he had managed to do this, he made another belly laugh and pointed to the snowfield in front of us. I shuddered, recalling the frozen, unseen horror beneath. According to him, the shape-shifting monster hailed originally from the stars as well, and the workers had been studying it prior to their crash. It was a wild and untamed force, but also directly connected to the larger, ugly masters. Their life force, the coal, could also freeze and become as white as the snow and dissipate into the ground. Eventually, after time, this is what Nicholas claimed created the soulless abomination. Their own hatred of the ice is what destroyed them via this endless beast that was born of such evil. It made the mountain their prison, and they perished while the workers adapted to the cold. Once the island was liberated from the masters, their hearts bursting from the cold that enlarged and killed them, Nicholas said that he chose to leave to return to the world of man. 
It was a sad day for the alliance that he formed, but the workers revealed a secret that I am now plagued with. When he arrived at the island, he died and his body was given over to their tree goddess. Now, as a resurrected servant, he was a part of their hive mind, and this is why they were able to communicate and work together. They also revealed because of the roots of their goddess being within his new body. Whenever he died again, he would return to the north and be a new servant all over again. His purpose now was to serve this queen. And Nicholas admitted that he didn't believe this until he did in fact perish, and then for the next few centuries became the legendary figure that we know as Santa Claus. You see, the myths were spread by me because I wanted to see to it that this place was found by others, so that our work may continue. To some, I was a Dutchman, to others a wondrous worker, but the purpose that I had instilled in me was always the same. Serve the Queen. His testimony had mortified me given that I know that I have also become infected. There is more that he has yet to reveal, he said, as we arrived at the factory. The Christmas spirit, the endless gift giving and the spread of toys and mirth across the world. All this is to serve the unified mind. Each of the soldiers and dolls and wondrous treasures the children of men received has this within. He paused and showed us the ghastly poisonous sand that we had been afflicted with since our arrival. The very soul of the mountain, he called it. It will bind us to this place and infest the minds of the children as well, spreading the stories and the folklore further, so that eventually more will be serving our queen. And when we made it to the factory, Nicholas intended to begin experimenting on our bodies the way he declared he had done so with his first success. We soon discovered this was in fact the Goat Man. For centuries, I had modified and worked in the genomes of our species to make the perfect race that will mix stars and earth together. The Krampus, he called it, was the pinnacle of human evolution to be the ultimate being. But then, when we visited the lower reaches of the factory where he was chained, we were shocked to discover that the beast man had escaped, or rather was freed. A lucre, that sentimental fool had attempted to let him loose and ultimately lost his life as a result. His death looked like it had been slow because his windpipe was crushed and he had been then forced into a brown sack, breaking all the bones in his body. Nicholas was furious at this and immediately demanded his servants search the nearby snowfields for the frost giant. January Redacted, 1943 Dupin has made his return and managed to subdue the mad English Santa that held us captive. His ruse and unexpected arrival startled the old man and we locked him into the goat man's cage. While he raged, the three of us that still lived formed a plan to escape. It would be impossible to be able to man the ship back across the ocean, so Garner suggested that we investigate the sleds which Nicholas said could fly. We used the sand, that mysterious pixie dust that had plagued us since the start, on the beasts of burden tied to the sleighs and climbed onto the launching platform. Aiming for the moon, Dupont took the reins and we flew across that dreary winter sky. I dare not say for sure how far we traveled, for the infectious control of the tree continued to plague me as we passed the starry night. Hallucinations of skeletons and talking coal, 
Seven-headed mice and even a massive slumbering god danced in my delirious mind. Lepa Louie. He was the one that made these wicked and vile creatures that now are a part of our children. His miracles were the nightmares that would change my body and make me the slave of his wife that tasked his children to endlessly warm their icy prison. Such a dark future I must push aside and look toward home, hoping what Nicholas told us was a lie. January 10th, 1943. We have returned to the crown. The sleigh took us as far as the coast of Sofloss where to our amazement, we were able to rendezvous with the German defector. All of us agreed there in that city and we could not reveal the truth about the mountain due to the dangers that it would be to our race if others found the mysterious island. All of us swore an oath of secrecy and silence. One mystery remained whenever we left that frozen hell, the origins of the infant that we saved. Dupin, Garner, and I speculated that this was another human experiment that Nicholas made. We never discerned the reasons he did this to the Germans or to the Goatman, but from what we can tell, the infant has no details that indicate he will alter. The other man all have families and were reluctant to take him as an adoptive son. I felt a strong connection to the boy and so I have chosen to bring him to my wife. I will lie and declare that he's the lost orphan of a foreigner. We've been trying for quite some time and now the Lord has blessed us. I now return to family and friends for a late Christmas and try to push all the horrors aside. The Crown has accepted our account that Germans sunk near the Icelandic coast, as all of our testimonies matched up. No further missions will ever need to tread on that labyrinth of endless winter. May the holidays be an occasion to fill my heart with hope again. Merry Christmas to all. The journals ended there, surprising me and my girlfriend because there were still details unfinished. It sounded all like an elaborate fantasy novel, but I have never known my grandfather to lie or create such a tale. I lied to her, though, saying that we would simply think of the whole affair as the ramblings of a senile soldier. But I could not stop thinking about what happened to Francois. The tree infected his mind, so when he died, did he become born again in the North Pole? And what of the child that he took home? I felt there was a hole in the story that I didn't fully grasp yet. And it wasn't until Christmas morning that I received the answer. A small gift under my own fireplace labeled from my father. It was an old video cassette labeled, Do not open until Christmas. I watched it alone and found that it was the final terrifying piece to this curse. Our curse. Transcript of video from Pierre Suarez Christensen. Time unknown. My son Jack, this is my last message before I take my life. Much of my life I've hidden from you because I had little choice. The same unfortunately is so with you. You and I share blood, you see, from the very tree that gave birth to us. We are divine, eternal slaves to the Christmas spirit that has infected that place so far from home. I was the child. I was the one saved from that place. But your grandfather should have saw to it that I was destroyed. Nicholas, the eternal claws. He created me to be the first offspring pure from the stand snow. I learned this when I read the journals. 
I tried to ignore what was in my blood, but as I got older, the siren song of the tree called to me. I am sworn to it, bound to it. It shall be my crucifix. Those holidays I never spent with you, I confess they were in service not to the crown, but to the madman of the north. The workers toil on toys, designed to infect the young minds. Nicholas is determined to continue the invasion until every child of our green earth is a worshipper of his queen. He's the one that tricked the Germans. He was seeking new blood, new ways to reach that goal of divinity in human flesh. When he spoke to me, he didn't consider me a child of man. I was meant to be born of winter and frost. I tried to tell grandfather this, but the madness had taken a hold of him long ago. You recall how he was before he lost it all. I could not fathom winding up like him, and even though I've tried to fight it, I cannot any longer. So I take my last breath and give you a fighting chance, my son. I beg you not to tell your mother. She suffers already so greatly. Christmas Day Present I left that night, before my girlfriend returned for a small holiday break. I took what little belongings I have and I made for the north. Yes, I intend to find Nicholas or this mountain of cold hell that he worships, and then finish what my grandfather started by blowing it up. I know this may be a suicide mission, the dangers are great, but Christmas and our world cannot be safe until I try. If I do not return, I left this transcript to be published online by a friend. I am sure it'll simply be regarded as a fanciful tale along with so many others. Yes, I feel the evil that Nicholas spreads in evident and the permeation of the Christmas legends. Commercialism has served him well. He is eternal as am I, but perhaps the Entity Queen is not. Perhaps a hope lies there in the mountain to destroy it all. I will pray for a Christmas miracle. Tidings of comfort and joy. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.